On exhibit in the Alaska State Museum in Juneau is a collection of old salmon cans. Fanciful labels depict Alaska themes, like the walrus brand. Others were created to catch the eye of a housewife, such as the butterfly brand. But one can stands out in significance, the North Pacific Trading and Packing Company's Cloac brand can. The town of Cloac on Prince of Wales Island within Southeast Alaska holds the distinction of canning the first salmon in Alaska back in 1878. Old salmon cans like this one hold more stories than fish. For this episode of Alaska Out of the Vault, we will trace the early development of Alaska's salmon industry through this can. We will consider the Clinket fishermen who caught the salmon that once filled the can, the Chinese cannery hands who made the can, the family who started this early fishing enterprise, and the United States' ambitions for Alaska's maritime resources. I'm Alaskan historian Anjali Grantham. Our first stop is on the water through which the salmon swam that once filled that can. The books I have are, I think it's 1898 and 1901. He has pictures and that's where the North Pacific and Trading Packing Company was on that side of the the island. And then when it burnt, they rebuilt over on this that's side. And this. A fisherman, resident and local historian from Prince of Wales Island. At one time, three canneries crowded the inlet at Cloac and she volunteered to take me to see them. Nothing remains from the original cannery, which burned around 1900. Years ago, I'd come over here and there were some, there were no buildings, but there was just um, some brick and some boilers up in the woods. And the, the cannery was rebuilt across the inlet. There we see broken dock pilings textured with mussels and barnacles. The cedar and spruce forest smelled sweetly aromatic as we tromped around, finding old retorts, pipes, and ceramic shards. Gone was the assortment of pitch roof buildings, the smoke coming from the chimney, and the pier, all of which are depicted on the Cloac brand can label. But the Cloac River, that's still there. And the boats, they are too, though of a different make and model. The next day, Kathy brought me to visit Mr. Fred Hamilton and Craig, the town next door to Cloac. Fred is 96 years old, and he's the grandson of George Hamilton, the founder of the North Pacific Trading and Packing Company. Fred never met his grandfather, but he remembers hearing about him. He was a businessman. He did a lot of traveling. And uh, he built a sawmill here along with a partner, and they had a little schooner that delivered lumber. But before we talk more about the establishment of that cannery in 1878 and George Hamilton, let's head back even further in time. Let's jump from Craig to Washington, D.C. as well, to April of 1867, when the United States was on the verge of purchasing Alaska from Russia. Secretary of State William Seward had negotiated the Treaty of Session with Russian Ambassador Edward de Stokel. However, the Senate still had to ratify this treaty. Senator Charles Sumner gave an impassioned speech to his colleagues in favor of ratification. In this speech, he lauded Alaska's sea otters, timber, and potential for minerals, but he ended his monologue on the topic of Alaska's fisheries. He detailed reports of large native communities subsisting on salmon through the winter, of European explorers who caught hundreds of halibut with limited effort, of the newly pioneered cod grounds off the Aleutian Islands. He envisioned an Alaskan fishing industry that would feed growing domestic markets in California, that would export salted fish to majority Catholic nations in Latin America, and that would provide seafood to new Chinese and Japanese markets. 
At the time, Alaska's seafood was exceedingly valuable, but not in the commercial sense. Aside from some limited attempts on the part of the Russian-American company to salt salmon for export, Alaska's fisheries were not really incorporated into any profit-making system. The value, then, was as the main source of food for all coastal-dwelling Alaskans, regardless of tribe or ethnic identity. Salmon and other marine resources were absolutely central to cultural systems across Alaska. Their value was as a value, not in a monetary sense, but as a conveyor of culture, identity, and, of course, calories. But Sumner wasn't considering Alaska's marine resources as a value system. He was imagining how these resources could fuel American enterprise. The commercial value of Alaska's fisheries at the time was low, but as Sumner stated, Of course, it is difficult to estimate what is so uncertain, or at least is perspective only. Our own fisheries, now so considerable, were small in the beginning. Small beginnings, therefore, are no discouragement to me, and I turn with confidence to the future. The beautiful bidar will give way to the fishing smack, the clipper, and the steamer. All things will be changed in form and proportion, but the original aptitude for the sea will remain. A practical race of intrepid navigators will swarm the coast, ready for any enterprise of business or patriotism. Commerce will find new arms, the country new defenders, the national flag new hands to bear it aloft. He concluded his speech thusly. Lastly, the fisheries, which in waters superabundant with animal life beyond any of the globe, seem to promise a new commerce to the country. It is clear that the United States noticed the potential of Alaska's marine resources and considered this potential as the nation moved forward with the purchase. Sumner's speech helped convince the Senate Alaska was to become American. Of course, no local fishermen were consulted on this matter, and by local fishermen, I mean Alaskan natives. Russia controlled very little of Alaska. The Russian-American company ruled over the Aleutian Islands and Kodiak in western Alaska, but elsewhere their influence was insignificant and some places null. In southeast Alaska, which is the location of this story, the Russian-American company had an uneasy truce with the Clinket, and the Russian foothold barely extended beyond Sitka. In southeast Alaska, the Clinket sold furs and local foods to the company and utilized the Russian goods received in exchange to enhance the wealth of their communities. While outside merchants brought new influences, diseases, and power dynamics, Clinket culture was not dramatically altered during the Russian era of Alaska's history. The Russian-American company had a state-sanctioned monopoly on the fur trade, while the Clinket had a culturally-sanctioned monopoly on the local fish resources. When the U.S. Army arrived in Alaska in 1867, they were instructed to countenance no monopolies whatsoever. With the U.S. purchase, Clinket sovereignty eroded. Wily American wealth seekers rushed to Sitka. The U.S. Army opened forts in Clinket territory in Wrangell, Tongass, and Sitka. The military demonstrated through the bombing of southeast villages of Cake and Angoon that they would use their military prowess to protect white interests. Within a couple of decades, missionaries had infiltrated Clinket and Haida country, encouraging not only religious conversion, but cultural conversion, including abandoning rituals, traditional practices, and transforming the notion of family into the nuclear unit which we are familiar with today. American schools prompted families to consolidate into permanent villages, and with the advent of the commercial seafood industry, Clinket and Haida peoples were incorporated into the cash economy. Brevet Major General Jefferson Davis was a military commander of the Department of Alaska. In a report written in 1870, General Davis notes the transitions afoot in Clinket country. The fisheries of Alaska are destined in all probability to become the greatest resource of the territory. Already, they're beginning to attract the attention of our fishermen, 
and also the attention of the Indian. In this business, especially the coast fishing, I think the greatest future cause of difficulty between the races exists. Fish forms the chief and most easily procured food of the natives, and has from time immemorial. There is plenty for all, but both parties will soon doubtless begin to lay exclusive claim to the best localities for taking them, and conflicts will arise. Sufficient signs of this have already arisen to induce me to suggest to the government the necessity of making provision for the settlement of these questions before it is too late. The Clinkin system for managing salmon fisheries differed markedly from the American system. According to American principles, fish were common property, supposedly open to whomever, though in practice the rights of white men to fish were more guaranteed than any others. But this principle of common property ownership differed from the Clinkett view. People owned fishing places, clans owned fishing places. If there were large enough fishing places, uh, larger than, than uh, met the clan's needs, uh, other clans were allowed in. That's Dennis Demert, a clinket from Klawak and the former director of the Native Studies Program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. According to Clinkett principles, streams and fishing areas were owned by certain families who had generational rights to the returning salmon. Uh, there were well-established property rights, highly recognized by everyone, in which clan leaders of specific clans um, were responsible. They referred to amongst the Clinkett as the Hinsati. So they're responsible for the maintenance and the productivity of, their, of the system um, that they're in charge of uh, uh, for their people and for the resource. Dr. Stephen Langdon is Professor Emeritus at the University of Alaska Anchorage and an anthropologist who has dedicated his career to studying Clinket and Haida fishing. We spoke at length about traditional Clinket and Haida management of the Prince of Wales Island salmon fishery. Well, the Clinkets and the Haidas both had um, very, very sophisticated and conservation-oriented um, traditional technologies. The Clinket and Haida were masterful fishermen who had designed conservation-minded fishing systems. Fishing systems include the management of people, such as fishermen, the tools and technologies deployed to catch the fish, ecosystem knowledge, and, to some extent, ecosystem manipulation. The Cloac Estuary is a highly engineered landscape before the falls, in which you'll find two different types of, of intertidal fish traps used. Intertidal indicates the area of a beach that is covered and then uncovered through tidal action. Um, they were designed such that the, the traps, which were actually made uh, uh, out of um, wood slat uh, fences, which could be put in place in the season and taken down and stored, were put in place uh, and the, and the uh, <clears throat> structures would be completely inundated at high tide. This meant that the fish that were heading up the Cloac River could easily ascend to spawn. But as the tide went out, the wooden slats were exposed at the beach near the mouth of the river, preventing some of the salmon from retreating out to the ocean with the lowering tide. So this ensured uh, the modern problem of uh, escapement was completely um, taken care of in that the traps like this would only catch on the ebb tide. Escapement refers to the number of fish that make it upstream to spawn. It was a responsibility of the clan who owned the river system to ensure that enough salmon made it upriver. The Cloac River system was owned and managed by the Gunnahuddy clan at the time of the U.S. purchase. The, at Cloac, the um, Gunnahuddy clan, which owned uh, the uh, Cloac stream, um, 
was represented at, at the time of the coming of uh, commercial fisheries by a leader named Teka Haight. And, and um, Teka Haight was of the Gunahati clan, and his name is basically concurrent with the Kowak uh, River in terms of the responsibilities to maintain that. For generations, the Clinket had successfully managed the Cloac River system, developing technologies and a cultural system that ensured the continuation of the salmon runs while feeding the community. Soon after the U.S. purchase, entrepreneurs started salmon saltries in southeast Alaska and on Kodiak Island. Saltries are as they sound, places where fish are packed in the salt brine for preservation. These barrels were then shipped south to be sold. By the late 1870s, salmon canneries were flourishing on the Sacramento and Columbia Rivers, but not yet in Alaska. The first salmon cannery was established on the West Coast in 1864, when the Humes brothers convinced their tinsmith friend named Hapgood to set up shop on the Sacramento River. Each can was handmade, soldered with lead, filled, boiled, and then pierced at top to allow the steam to vent. The hole was unsealed. This was a time and labor-intensive process, but it resulted in a marvelous product. In a time before widespread refrigeration, the salmon could be preserved. It did not spoil in the can. Salmon, once the domain of summer, could be consumed all year round and shipped far from the waters on which these salmon were caught. Back in Cloac, how George Hamilton made it to Prince of Wales Island, his grandson Fred is unsure. He explains that he was a Scottish immigrant who married a Haida woman, possibly named Maggie. George Hamilton had a trading post at Cloac, and from there he and a partner also salted salmon. However, it required significant capital to build a cannery. All of the material had to be purchased down south and shipped in. But he knew that he was located in a good spot for a cannery. One day they always look for where the salmon cannery is a good supply of water. And Cloac had a big good supply and a protected place. A real good salmon stream there, you know, lake, and all species of fish except except the king salmon. Dennis Demmert agrees. And uh, so I think it's a combination of the ab- abundance of fish and being protected and uh, accessible for for the uh, steamboats to take the fish out. Hamilton sold his trading post and saltry to men who had the capital to develop the enterprise. Sisson, Wallace & Co. acquired what had been referred to as Hamilton's Fishery. This California firm had stores in Northern California and worked as labor contractors, recruiting Chinese laborers to build California's railroads. The next step was to incorporate the North Pacific Trading and Packing Company. George Hamilton became a shareholder. Everything was ready to establish the cannery. But the new enterprise needed the approval of the Gunnahuddy clan. Here, Steve Langdon describes what the historic records from Naval Captain Jefferson Mosier indicate. The first cannery operators paid a fee, and what is in fact a lease, uh, to Tekahate recognizing his ownership of that. So he is the first of the Clinket leaders to stand up for the traditional property rights with the incoming commercial enterprises, and he successfully protected those property rights for the Clinket people. Now, um, over the course of his um, jurisdiction, the remainder of his lifetime, if you look in Moser's records on the productivity of the Quahog system, you'll see that it sustained a very substantial high level of productivity for about 20 years. This is unknown in other kinds of commercial enterprises, and it reflects upon uh, 
Secretary's ability to continue to ensure that the, that the um, escapement was established. Steve then contends that it was the North Pacific Trading and Packing Company's willingness to embrace traditional clinket management of the cloak system that assured that the cannery had ample fish to process during the first decades of its operation. Elsewhere in southeast Alaska, Clinket people negotiated to continue to control their fishing grounds as the commercial salmon industry expanded. Take Sitka, for example. Cloak wasn't the only canning outfit to open in 1878. The Cutting Packing Company was also established that year in Sitka. Yes, two canneries were started that same year, but reportedly Cloak takes the fame because it managed to process the first can of salmon that season. Sorry, Sitka. But don't worry, I won't neglect Sitka completely, since it was on the docks at Sitka that an exceptional account of cultural and economic negotiation was recorded. The following passage was written by William Governor Morris, who was a special agent for the Treasury Department. By the time these first two canneries were established in 1878, Alaska was no longer managed by the U.S. Army, but as a customs district, with the Treasury Department at the helm. Morris was the one in charge. In the following account, you will hear how the very day that the manager of Cutting Packing Company arrived in Sitka to begin construction of the new facility, the Sitka Clinket sensed that their ownership over local fisheries was under attack, not only by the new cannery, but also the Chinese workers that the cannery brought north. I found on board the whole outfit and paraphernalia of the cannery intended to be established by Mr. Hunter at Sitka. He had some white employees and 18 Chinamen who were hired exclusively to manufacture the tin cans. Upon reaching Sitka, as usual, the whole tribe, more or less, were found congregated on the wharf. As soon as the Chinamen were descried, a general howl arose and the wildest excitement was manifested. Before the lines were made fast, runners started for the village and the whole beach suddenly became an instant commotion. Old and young, lame, halt, and blind, all started pell-mell for the heathen Chinese. Anna Hoots, the war chief, made a most inflammatory speech to the young bucks to the effect that the Chinamen should not be permitted to land. Sitka Jack was present as a quiet spectator, seemingly not interested in the proceedings, but I could see he was taking everything in and kept quiet in order to be more respected as the row progressed. Morris notes that he had brought a Mr. Keene along who spoke Chinook jargon to serve as translator. Keene interpreted what Mr. Hunter said into Chinook, which was the common trade language along the northwest coast, and then Sitka Jack translated that into Clinket for Anahoots. The Clinket were livid about the imported Chinese labor, and Mr. Hunter reconsidered establishing the cannery at all in fear of imminent violence. I begged him to reconsider his determination and see if we could not pacify the Indians by explaining to them the presence of the Chinese. I relied very much on the good sense of Jack, who was very anxious to have the cannery there, and in truth, so were all the Indians, but the point of controversy was that the Chinamen had been imported to catch the fish, and that the Indians were half-naked and hungry, deserved the employment by right, and they would fight before they would permit any such infringement upon their reserved rights. It was their country, and John Chinaman should not come. A very strong argument, it must be admitted. Mr. Hunter very frankly explained to the Indians such was not the case, that it was his intention to buy all his fish from the Indians, and that the Chinamen were brought along to make tin cans, and when they had finished the cans, they should be sent away. Furthermore, if the Indians would learn to make cans, no more Chinamen should be employed. 
Mr. Keene very adroitly impressed upon those present the folly of their course, and I am satisfied it was owing a great deal to the fact and judgment displayed by him that we succeeded as well as we did. I had but little to say, only to remind them that the man of war was not far off, lying at anchor at Wrangell, and if they wanted a little gunnery practice, they should be speedily entertained. After a long powwow, a calm succeeded the storm. Good humor, as suddenly prevailed as their angry passions had become inflamed, and order reigned in Warsaw. In a very short time, as many Indians as could be set profitably to work were hired by Mr. Hunter to discharge his material. The Chinamen landed in perfect security, walked uptown, hired a cabin from one of the tribe, purchased wood, and by nightfall were snugly domiciled. The deal, then, made under threat of American military attack, was that the clinket were to sell the fish to the cannery, the Chinese were responsible for processing and canning the fish, and a white superintendent was in charge of managing the whole operation. This pattern repeated itself over and over and over again in Southeast Alaska salmon industry, so much so that it bears repeating. Natives were fishermen, Asians were cannery workers, and white men held positions of power within the cannery companies. It was in 1878, then, that Asians really started spending time in Alaska. Prior to this, there were Asian voyagers who had made it to Alaska's shores, but in limited numbers. After the establishment of the commercial salmon industry, however, Alaska became a yearly stop for Asian migrant workers. Chinese cannery workers served as a primary workforce in the salmon industry for decades. However, restrictive immigration laws limited new Chinese immigrants beginning in 1882. Fred Hamilton recalls watching the transition in the composition of the Asian cannery crews at the Craig Cannery throughout his childhood, a transition closely connected to United States immigration policies. At first there was uh, Chinese. I always remember the Chinese. They had a bunkhouse down there and they had a kind of a cooking place out. They'd even bring their own pigs and everything. they cook outdoors, so... But they were really friendly. Then from Chinese, they went to Japanese, then last went to the Filipinos. What were the Chinese people doing for the cannery? What kind of work? They did all the menial tasks, you know. They got them real cheap. Fred even saw the crew making cans the old-fashioned way, with sheets of tin, large shears, and solder. When they first started the canneries, They'd haul in all the raw materials for the cans. They'd have big sheets of tin, and they'd cut them, and they'd make their own cans. And that was something. But later on, they they, they got the can, but they flat, and all they had to do was open them up. There, Fred also describes how the cannery shifted away from handmade cans of salmon. The cans were pre-made and flattened, and then chipped north and popped open into the customary cylindrical shape. In Sitka, Chinese cannery hands worked in the cannery from the very beginning, and although when Fred was a child sneaking into the cannery, he observed the Chinese cannery hands making cans, when George Hamilton established his saltery and then cannery at Klawak, Clinkett and Haida actually served as the cannery workforce. Here, Steve Langton describes how this shifted. And so they did indeed uh, strike. They brought a strike probably around that same time period, 1890, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, with a with a claim for higher rates for fish and higher rates for labor, and initially the North Pacific Packing and Trading Company did raise those prices, but here was the here was the critical factor. 
but they were unwilling to continue to do that, and they had an option. And that option was to import the completely dependent Chinese labor. And that's what happened. Uh, Kowak was not necessarily the earliest, but it was the first case where you have the indigenous labor force um, in the cannery proper displaced. Uh, the Kowak men continued to capture the fish, but there were also white fishermen as well um, by the mid-1890s. In addition to still relying on Clinket and Haida fishermen, the cannery at Klawak had the lease with Tekahe, the traditional Clinket manager of the Klawak system. But that, too, was cast aside. When Tekahe died, those particular uh, operations of relationship ceased. So uh, that's how property fisheries controlled by Clinket and Haida under traditional technologies became open access fisheries under under federal law, and no longer were uh, under the control of the uh, of the uh, tribal leaders and the Hinsatis to ensure conservation. Recall how the cannery's persisting reliance on Clinket-style management of the Cloac fishery might have kept the salmon run strong. Steve says that part of this was the insistence that the fishermen not fish in certain areas. Once the cannery started sending fishermen further afield, intercepting returning salmon not close to their home streams, the salmon returns began to diminish. It's a, it's a quite fascinating history in terms of how the people's very sophisticated system um, evolved with technologies, property rights, and moral responsibilities was overridden um, for purposes of um, commercial development and profit. Canneries brought real changes to the lives and landscapes of Southeast Alaska. Traditional fishing techniques gave way to methods designed to maximize production. The shores became the sites of industrial fish processing plants. American fisheries management supplanted native management. New people immigrated to Alaska to fish or establish canneries or just came for a season. Klika and Haida peoples too changed their lives. Well, uh, what I can remember from my father saying what his father-in-law said was, you know, that uh, he anticipated a long time ago that uh, people coming in, strange people coming in, uh, really, really were taking over and they had a lot of power and, and uh, things were going to change. Just the fact of the uh, cash economy getting paid for fish and with money being able to buy things. And uh, that, that seemed to have a fairly quick impact on uh, ways of doing things and, and not having to do things in the old way anymore. I Fishing continues as a core aspect of the lives of many people on Prince of Wales Island, and all of Alaska for that matter. The methods have shifted, ownership too, but there is continuity, especially evident in the continued participation in the salmon fishery by families like the Demerts and the Hamiltons. Well, I started fishing when I was 11, you know. Fred had one of the first power skiffs in the area, but that's not what he started out with. One pair of eight-foot old cars. It is the early history represented in that old Cloac brand salmon can at the museum and the sustained participation in the salmon fishery by Alaskan families like the Hamiltons and the Demerts that helped turn Charles Sumner's vision for Alaska's seafood industry into what is a global powerhouse today.
Thank you to Kathy Peavy, Karen Hofstad, Julie Yates Fulton, Dennis Demmer, Frank Hamilton, Steve Langdon, the Alaska State Library, Archives, and Museum, the Office of History and Archaeology, and the Alaska Historical Commission for making this program possible.